Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Song of Solomon, which is one of the most interesting books of the Bible, and we think that you will find it interesting too. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning, though, we get to be in the Song of Songs, chapter 8. It's the last chapter of this little book, and some of you are probably breathing a sigh of relief because it's been such a weird book. Uh, But uh, this morning, that's where we're going to be. Now, today is actually not the last day in the Song of Songs. Next Sunday is the epilogue. Um, This is the last Sunday we're going to be in the Song of Songs proper, if you will, but next Sunday, anticipating just wrapping the whole thing up in a little bit of a different way. So, uh, But this morning, we're going to be focused right here on this last chapter um, of the Song of Songs. You know, if you were to take a microphone and a clipboard and go around the world asking people, what's wrong with the world? You would find, you'd probably get a lot of answers, but you'd find that everybody falls into one of two general categories. You have the moral conformists, those who would adhere to moral conformity on one end of the spectrum. And then you have the self, those adhering to self-discovery, what I'll say, self-discovery on the other side of the spectrum. The moral conformists would say this, you know, the problem with the world is all those wackos that don't use common sense. Those people that follow their feelings and do things that are illogical, that's the problem with with this world. In their opinion, people who don't follow social moral norms, they're the problem. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got the self-discoverers, I'll call them. These are the folks that would say, you know, the problem with this world is all the bigoted, hateful people who restrict personal freedoms and deny us the right to follow our own path. And to, and to go as we feel that we should go. Now, the moral conformist would say, I'm a good person. That's what they do. They've followed the rules. And it used to be that these people also went to church because we used to believe that you know, morally good people go to church. That's part of the gig. Of course, nowadays, that has all changed because people are beginning to discover that you don't have to go to church to be a good person. So they're abandoning church right and left. Actually, I read an article the, just yesterday. We've, uh, the church has lost 12% of her attenders in just the last year. So that's a sto- it's an astonishing number if you think about it. All that to say, many moralists could be religious, of course, but the point is you don't have to be religious to be a moral conformist. And while moral conformity makes a person feel superior, they still feel empty. Now, on the other side, you've got self-discoverers. They've thrown off these Victorian constructs of what's moral, and they've plunged themselves headlong into hedonistic living and self-expression. They've determined that nobody's rules are going to dictate how I feel I want to live. Their feelings inform their moral code. Whatever I feel is right, whatever feels good to me to do, that's what I do. However, 
if you catch those people in a moment of honesty, they will admit that self-discovery and expression has not brought them the happiness and the fulfillment that they had hoped it would. Our present-day culture, our present-day culture war that is right now being fought is being fought between moral conformists and self-discoverers. Now, I say this to claim that the Bible you hold in your hands, that this actually speaks directly into this melee's. The surprising message of the Bible is all of us are what's wrong with the world. And Jesus loves all of us. That's the message of Scripture. Now, the moral conformist, you see, here's the problem with that message. We've, it's become overused. You know, we've put God loves you on bumper stickers so much that we just sort of all expect it. Yeah, God loves you. And you hear it, and the truth is, it bounces right off your heart. It doesn't penetrate. The moral conformist hears that God loves them, and they think, of course God loves me. I'm a good person. On the other hand, the self-discovery hears that and says, of course God loves me. I'm a beautiful person. Why wouldn't he love me? Yet you see, neither one of them has apprehended the love of God and what it means for them. The moral conformist continues following his rules, thinking that God loves me because I'm good, and the self-discoverer continues their licentious living, thinking God loves me because I'm a beautiful person. But neither of them has any clue how the love of God can set them free, how it can give them joy, how it can satisfy their empty heart. And this is why I believe the message of the Song of Songs is so powerful and so relevant for our time. Because this song is located in the middle of your Bible. You see that? So it's at the heart of your Bible. And what do you find at the heart of your Bible? You find the heartbeat of God, and you discover it's beating for you. He loves you. And it's not a sermon. It's not a seminar. It's not even a safe space. It's a song, and it's not a list of rules. It's a poem. It's not telling you what to do. It's not, here's five steps to a better life. Not at all. It's showing you how you can truly live, and it penetrates both types of people. Its language is saucy and daring, even shocking at times, isn't it? We're confronted with the truth that God loves me is far more comprehensive and penetrating and life-changing than I had ever imagined it could be. That God, he has a passion for you and me that is so unbelievably hot that it makes us uncomfortable and it makes us awkward. You love me like that, God? And it rattles the moralist who has sanitized God's love and locked it up behind stained glass windows and relegated it to children's Sunday school songs. And, it, and the moralist discovers when they are confronted with the love of God, discover that all of my rules and all my self-righteousness, it wasn't necessary. And on the other hand, it resonates like a bell in the soul of a self-discoverer who realizes for the first time, you've always been loved. 
You've always been lovable. And none of what you've tried to do to remake yourself and redefine yourself was necessary. Like all of your efforts, futile and unnecessary. You see what I mean? The truth is both groups are lost and they're both are separated from God. But see, listen, here's what the prophet Zephaniah says. This is God. He says, the Lord, your God, is with you. This is, the, this is scripture. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Can you just sit with that for a second? There's so much noise. He cuts through all of the conflict. It quiets you with his love. And then if you hear it, listen. He rejoices over you with singing. Can you hear it? Like, like if just for a second, you know, we could just stop the rat race. If we could just like unplug the unmerry merry-go-round that we all seem to be spinning on every day and just listen, like listen, can you hear it? I think that's God. I think I hear him singing. I love you people. Oh, yes, I do. I love you people. I died for you. To take your sins away. It's true. Oh, people, I love you. You hear? The song of God rejoicing over you with singing. Like this is the God that you've always hoped he would be, but you didn't dare to think that he could be. Like this is the God that you've been searching for. The God whose relentless pursuit for you will stop at nothing until your life and his life are woven together as one. This is the storyline of the Song of Songs. We've discovered that this summer, that we are the common peasant girl who has caught the eye of the king. And his love for us has penetrated our insecurities and our fears, and he's transformed us into the queen of his dreams. And this is what we find in this song. And as we come to chapter 8 today, it's hard to believe that we're the same person. I mean, at the beginning of the song in chapters 1 and 2, we were insecure. We were saying things like, don't, don't look at me because I'm dark. In chapter 2, verse 1, we were saying, you know, I'm, I, I'm just a flower, but there's so many other flowers. I'm just one flower among all the flowers. We were, we were hiding like a timid dove, chapter 2, verse 14. He's calling us to come out of the rock. We're hiding in the clefts of the rock, unwilling to come out. In, in chapter 1, verse 6, we're filled with excuses. Oh, don't, don't look at me because I'm dark. My brothers made me work in the vineyards. It's not my fault. They made me do it. 
I didn't have time to, to take care of myself, to clean myself up. That was us in chapters 1 and 2. And now, because of his love, we come into chapter 8, and we're speaking, and we're an entirely different person. Look at how we speak in chapter 8, verse 1. We are speaking to him, and we say, If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breast, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So this idea of kissing your brother, that's not a hillbilly kind of thing. Not at all. This is an ancient culture, and in this ancient culture, it was improper for public displays of affection to be shown even between husbands and wives and never between, you know, a couple that's engaged to be married. However, if your family members, if he's your brother or sister, your mother or your father, you could greet them in the marketplace with a kiss on the cheek and a big embrace. And so what she's saying is, oh, I wish I could do that because I want to tell the whole world how much I love you. I don't want our love to be a secret anymore. I want everybody to hear about it. I have fallen in love with Jesus, and I'm shouting it from the mountaintops, and I'm shouting it from the rooftops, and that's, that's her heart. You see that? Wow. She's had quite a transformation, hasn't she? From this timid little dove hiding in the cleft of the rock, and now she's shouting it from the mountaintops that I love this man. And then the friends pipe in, they observe in verse 5, they say, who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? You see that? This is a callback to the wilderness wanderings when the people of Israel followed Moses in circles around the desert for 40 years. And then remember, after Moses died, Joshua became their leader, and it was under Joshua's leadership that they finally went in and claimed the promised land. Ironically, the name Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. Jesus is Greek. The name, the name Jesus is a Greek name, and the name Joshua is the Hebrew name, but they're the same name, and they both mean Jesus or Joshua, same name, means God saves. So isn't that interesting that the people of Israel spend 40 years wandering in the desert under Moses, and then God saves, takes over the leadership. And then it was with God saves, leaning on him, following God saves, that they finally claim the promised land. And the same is true for you and me. Look at whether you're a moralist who thinks you're a good person or a self-discoverer who thinks that you're a beautiful person. Regardless, you found yourself stuck in a desert, if you will, of your own creation. But here's the promise of Scripture. If you lean on Jesus, on God saves, he will bring you out of that wilderness and into the land of promise. You continue reading in chapter 8, and we begin to step into our destiny. Look at the last half of chapter 8, verse 5. This is us speaking again, and we're speaking to Jesus, and we say, under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave, birth, gave you birth. 
placed me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy, unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Now, I want to just camp out with these three verses for a few minutes, okay? Because these three verses are actually the culmination. They're the, they're the summit of the whole song. Like, this is where we've been going the whole summer, these three verses. So it's important for us to just to take a second and, and dig into them a little bit further, okay? And what we find here is this. You find this woman has become pretty uh, forceful. The grammatical syntax of the Hebrew in this is actually very forceful. Um, she's not being demanding, but she's bold. She's, she's confident. She, she's beginning to own the relationship. She knows that she's in this, and she knows that he's in this. You see, you get that? So the insecurity is completely gone now. And now she's beginning to speak, and she says to him, place me like a seal over your heart and on your arm. So a seal is a statement of ownership. Back then, you took your seal, you stamped something, you claimed it, you said, that's mine. My seal is on it. So she's saying, place me like a seal on your heart and your inner being. Place me like a seal on your arm, on your outer being. I want, I want to own all of you, she says. But there's another meaning to this, because the Hebrew word that gets translated seal also gets translated prison cell. So there's sort of a double meaning here. On one hand, she's saying, I want to own you. You are mine. You're my man, right? But on the other hand, she says, I want you to own me. I want you to lock me up and throw away the key. When you put these two things together, you've got a strong statement of commitment. It's a poetic way. You understand this is a poem. You understand it's music. So you have to give it a lot of, bit of, a lot of room. But it's a poetic way of her saying, we are exclusive. We have forsaken all others. I'm yours. You are mine. Nobody else for the two of us. Jesus, I'm all in. And then why does the woman make such a claim? She says, because my love for you has grown to this point. My love for you has become this strong. And she gives five things that her love has become. And these five things are all images that, that basically paint the picture that her love has become powerful. And, and we need to also hear this, that our love is a reflection of his love. Remember, we love because he first loved us. So anything that we know about love, it's because Jesus first loved us with it. So our love begins to look like his love for us. Does this make sense? And so that's why we want to answer this question. Is my love for Jesus like this, like these five things? Could I say that it has become this? Number one, has my love for Jesus become as strong as death? She says that, my love is as strong as death. Once death gets a hold of a person, it doesn't let go. Have you ever noticed that? There's a permanence to death. So is my commitment to Christ like this, that it never lets go? 
My commitment to Jesus is resolute, unshakable, unwavering, like death. First thing. Second thing. Is my love for Jesus a jealousy as unyielding as the grave? A jealousy as unyielding as the grave? Do you know that there's a good kind of jealousy and a bad kind of jealousy? We all know the bad jealousy, the bad jealousy that's controlling and manipulative and ugly. That's, that's not healthy at all. But there's a very healthy kind of jealousy that you find in an intimate relationship that, that says, I'm, I'm fighting to protect and defend this relationship. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, God calls himself a jealous God. Why? Well, he belongs to his people, and his people belong to him, but they were worshiping false gods, and God's not cool with that. It's like, what's up with that? We are in an exclusive relationship. There's not room for other gods in this relationship. So he is a jealous God. He's jealous for us. The same is true in marriage. I mean, if there's, if there's some dude hanging around my wife, talking to her all the time, you can bet that I'll be asking him some questions. Wouldn't you guys? Same thing. Why? In marriage, jealousy, that kind of jealousy is appropriate. It, it keeps all the rivals to the relationship out. That's a healthy kind of thing. It's protective. It's secure. And God feels the same way about us. And here we say the same thing for him. God, I'm jealous for you in the same way that you're jealous for me. I don't want there to be any other rivals to our relationship. Lord, you are number one in my book. You're the only one in my book, God. Number three, she says, my love has become a mighty burning flame. You see there in, chat, in verse six, it burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame, she says. You know, the Hebrew word here is the word shalhabet-yah, and it literally means the flame of God. So on one hand, she could just be saying something as simple as, my love for you is a god-awful flame, like it is hot. Or she could be actually comparing her love to him to be the same as the fire of God. You know, God reveals himself as fire in Scripture, does he not? Uh, he was a pillar of fire that traveled with Israel in the desert. He was a burning bush who appeared to Moses. Um, he calls himself in Deuteronomy a consuming fire. In the, the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. So fire and God seem to go hand in hand. And she's saying, my love for you is like that fire. It's the fire of God. Well, that's a hot love, wouldn't you say? That's a, that's a love that's on a whole nother level. Like it, it is, your love is so hot, it's as hot as God. That's pretty hot. You understand she's being poetic. She's using, uh, you know, the kind of language to just express how intense her love is. Would you be able to say the same thing? Jesus, my love for you is as hot as the fire of God. Number four, she says, my love's an unquenchable love. She claims many waters cannot quench this love, that rivers can't wash it away, sweep it away. 
There's some interesting historical background behind this concept because to these people, the ancient people who first would have read the Song of Songs or heard the Song of Songs sung, they were actually afraid of water. They were afraid of large bodies of water, like the Mediterranean Sea, for example, that would have been a big one for them, or any other sea or large lake, because water's unpredictable. You know, you could be out in the middle of that, and a storm could come up, and and you think about it from an ancient mindset, we send these people in a boat, and then they go off, and then they disappear, and we never see them again. So what's happened? This is a people that, you know, they, they, the spirit world is very real to them. And so they, they attach gods to all these things. So you have chaos that just seems to rule these waters and, and is, you know, arbitrary, just takes people. And then you have order that's constantly battling chaos. So order and chaos are fighting one another for control. And people get caught in the crossfire all the time. And so what she's saying is, when she says, my love for you is an unquenchable love, she's saying that even waters can't put it out. Can't put it out. She's saying that my love is so strong, it brings order to chaos. My love for you is so strong, it's powerful enough to arrest the angry gods and bring them into submission. In essence, that's what she's saying. Again, in a poetic way, right? That's how powerful her love is. And then number five, she says, my love for you is better than money. If one were to give all the wealth of of his house for love, it would be what? Utterly scorned. Why? You can't buy this kind of love. Can't be bought. This kind of love, it, it happens over time. As each person dies to themselves, and they learn to live for the other. And the play on words that she uses in verses 11 and 12 are kind of interesting. It uses the same idea. Look at verses 11 and 12. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. You see that? My own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who tend its fruit. This is all a poetic way of saying this. You can keep your money. I'm all yours. I'm not after your money. I'm after you. A thousand shekels are for you. I don't want them. 200 shekels for the workers. You, you can take them. I really don't want that. I want you. She says, my own vineyard is mine to give. The vineyard here is a picture of herself, of her whole self. It's a picture of me, of you. And she's saying, you can't buy me, but I will gladly give myself to you. See, you are way better than money. I want you more than anything else. And I have to think that this is the kind of thing that Jesus is just dying to hear from you and me. Jesus, I'm not interested in all the things you can do for me. I mean, although thank you, Jesus, because you are kind and you are giving and you are generous, and I acknowledge that, your goodness, Jesus. But I'm not in this because you do all these good things for me, Jesus. I want you. Jesus, I am so enthralled by you, and I'm giving you all that I am, Jesus. 
I got to think Jesus wants to hear that from us. I got to think that I need to come to the place where I can honestly say that. That Jesus, if I didn't have anything else, if you did nothing else for me, I would have all that I want because I want you. I find you, Jesus, to be fascinating. I find you to be intriguing. You have stolen my heart, captured my attention. I want you, Jesus. After all we've been through, Jesus, my love for you is strong as death, with a jealousy as unyielding as the grave, burning like a mighty fire, unquenchable, and better than money itself. Jesus, I want you. And in verse 13, Jesus speaks and he asks us to do something. In verse 13, look at what he says. He says, you who dwell in the gardens, so that's us, we're the one who dwells in the gardens. The um, literal way of translating that is garden dweller. There you are. So that's us, we're the garden dweller. He says, you who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. Isn't that something that Jesus wants to hear your voice? You know, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus gave you a voice? And we use this for so many things, don't we? So many useless things. I think about all the careless words that come out of my mouth on a daily basis. I use it for so many just silly things. And Jesus says, I want to hear your voice. Would you speak? And how does... How does my voice glorify him? Well, worship is certainly one way to do it, isn't it? I think this morning when you're singing your guts out, you're worshiping, he, that's your voice. He loves to hear that. He loves that. Even if you sing off key, he just loves it. Because you're expressing your love for him. He, he loves to hear your prayer. That's another way that your voice can please him. He loves that. You're praying for somebody. You're interceding. I think that the times of prayer we've had the last couple of weeks for Aaron while he was in the hospital and so critical, man, that, that pleased the heart of God so much to hear our voices come together for him. You know? How about every time that you share, you talk about him with a friend? You're using your voice, right? And he loves to hear that. He's like, oh, look, they're talking about me again. I love that. Jesus asks to hear our voice. And so verse 14 is our response. And verse 14 is how the whole song ends. And uh, the song ends in a similar way to how it began. If you recall, at the very beginning of the song, what, nine weeks ago when we first started this, we began by asking for a kiss. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 2, she says, kiss me. And, and what we said was, that's, that's us asking, we want to know you, Jesus. I want to know you. I want to go deeper with you. And here the song ends at the end of chapter 8 with another request. And it's sort of a cliffhanger because we don't really know how, what happens next. I think we can assume what happens next. They go off to live happily ever after. I think that's the assumption. But 
The song ends with then us making another request. Look at verse 14. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. So we begin with kiss me, and we end with come away with me. Let's go. Let's get out of here. I want to be with you, see. After getting to know you, Jesus, I want to spend even more time with you. Come away, Lord Jesus. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because it is. Our Bibles end with this statement, with this same statement. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, we say, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And ironically, in Revelation, we are depicted as the bride of Christ. In fact, in this very passage, Revelation 22, the bride speaks. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Isn't that something? So in the Song of Songs, you have the bride saying, come away with me, my beloved. And in Revelation, we have the bride singing, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Interesting. I wonder what the connection is between this Song of Songs and the book of Revelation. I think there is a connection. It's waiting. That's the connection. Waiting. See the Song of Songs? You're waiting for the consummation of the marriage. Longing for the marriage to come together. And they're waiting for it. And in Revelation, we are waiting for the consummation of the ages. For all of earth to be done all of this jazz to be over. The wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation speaks about that taking place. When we will be his and he will be ours forevermore. And the curtain closes on life on planet earth, you know, once and for all. And we are with him forever and ever and ever and ever. Come away. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you think about it, this is Probably how the song goes, if you use a little bit of imagination, you can, you can see it in your mind's eye, that we, as we've said, this is a duet. You have a man singing the man's parts and a woman singing the woman's parts, and then the friends are the backup singers. And so here, the man sings, you who dwell in the gardens, let me hear your voice. And then the last person to sing in the song is the woman. Come away, my beloved. And you can hear the music begin to come down, and then the curtain falls, and then the whole thing is over, and that's how the song ends. And they live happily ever after. You know, whether you are someone trying, to, trying your hardest to be good, or you're someone who's desperately trying to redefine your life on your own terms, the message of this song is for you. The message is that Jesus loves you, and his love is powerful enough to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and to bring the change that you're seeking. There is nothing, hear me, there is nothing sentimental about his love. His love is a powerful force that has the strength and the ability to change you and me from the inside out if we would let it. But we've got to let go of our bumper sticker notions of God loves you. We've got to let go of our religious notions of God's love for us 
It's a nice Sunday school song. Jesus loves me, this I know. (laughs) And it doesn't do anything to you. Allow the love of God to absolutely penetrate your soul. And it will change your life forever. You know, we have this romantic notion in our movies and our books about, you know, we fell in love and your love has made me a better person and all that sort of thing. You know, honestly, that's a, that's a fraud, right? Like, my love does not have the ability to change anybody. And your love doesn't have the ability to change me. I mean, our love is a small little reflection of the greatest love of all. God's love does, however, have the ability to change us from the inside out. You know, I'm, I'm not much of an artist or an art fan, um, and as you know, I've told you stories about that before, and God bless my poor wife because she loves art, and I'm struggling, and I'm trying to appreciate art. But there, is, there are a few paintings that really do move me, and I would say that this painting is one of my favorites. It's called Forgiven, painted by Thomas Blackshear. He's the artist. You can come on up, please. Yep. And... Uh, there's so much going on in this painting, um, and it feels like every time I look at it, I see something different, you know? Now, just, let's just take a look at this for a second. Obviously, that's Jesus holding this man, okay? And the man, you could say, represents all of us, men, women alike, it's all of us. Whether we think we're morally good or we know that we're morally bankrupt, it's all of us. You notice that we are holding the hammer and the nail, meaning we're the one that pinned Jesus to the cross. It was my sin, it was your sin that put Jesus on that cross. I've realized I'm what's wrong with this world. It's not those other people out there. It's me. I'm the reason Jesus died. Because he loved me so much that he wasn't content to leave me in my mess. He came to fix it. And you notice the man's feet. He's not holding himself up. Jesus is holding him. You see that? This man has literally collapsed into the arms of Jesus. He's got nothing left. If he's the moral conformist, he has run out of good deeds, and he still feels empty. If he's a self-discovery person, he has run out of all of the ways that he could remake himself. He's run on empty, and none of it has satisfied He's got nothing left. He's collapsed into the arms of Jesus. And you notice Jesus' hands? They're pierced. And you notice that he doesn't have a clenched fist. He's not saying, you did this to me. And he doesn't have his finger pointed at us poking us in the chest, saying, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Look at what you did. 
His hands are open. And they're holding us. He's welcoming us. He's embracing us. The one who could condemn us doesn't. And he embraces us instead. And this love is what's sung about in the song of all songs that corrals our wandering feet. It collects our tears. It captures our hearts. It captivates our souls. And it catapults us into the life that we've wanted all along but never even dreamt was possible. This is what his love can do for us, friends. But we've got to come to the end of our road. We have to come to the place where we realize, I bring nothing to the table except brokenness. Like my good deeds are filthy rags. All of my sins are even worse. What does that make them? I bring nothing to the table. And so I collapse in his arms. And it's through his forgiveness of me, it's through his restoration, it's through his patience, it's through his faithfulness to you and to me, it's through, it's through his working, it's through his truth, speaking truth to you and to me, it's through his grace to you and to me that then our lives become changed. Romans says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, let's be honest, okay? Uh, most of us in this room are moral conformists. If I used to go back to that term, probably not self-discovery people. That's why you're at church, because good people go to church. So you're probably a moral conformist. Um, can I say this? Your goodness is getting in the way of intimacy with Jesus. Um, you're missing the grace of God because you think you deserve it. You understand that the only way to receive the grace of God is to realize you don't deserve it. To realize that you've got nothing that you bring to this. And He gives you everything. Can I just be uh, honest with you? My prayer this summer, as we've been going through the Song of Songs, has uh, been that it would... Um, shake us up because God loves you has become this cheesy little trite statement that we just say or we hear and think and it just bounces right off of our hearts and it's not doing anything to change us because we've gotten hardened to it and my prayer for us has been that the language of the Song of Songs, which is indeed uncomfortable and saucy and all that, that something about the Song of Songs, because it's so different, that it actually would 
penetrate our hearts. That's why I've loved it that some of you have really struggled with the language. That's good. I'm glad. Struggle more. But say this, Jesus, I know you love me, but I know that I don't know that really. And so I'm willing to put up with the awkward language of the Song of Songs if that's what it takes for your love to penetrate my heart. Does that make sense? Because Jesus, I don't want your love for me to just be something that I take for granted. I want your love for me to be something that changes me from the inside out. Because Lord, I know I need changing. I know it. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. 